Welcome to The Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. Well, after two years and 100 plus episodes, I'm taking my first short break from recording an episode, and I promise it's just a few weeks. But I have decided to re-release a few of my favorites, and today is Craig Alexander. Craig was actually my first ever episode of The Greg Bennett Show, episode number one. Uh, it was recorded at the end of 2019 and released on January 6, 2020. Craig is just one of my favorite people in the world and, and one of the greatest athletes to ever do the sport of triathlon. I think you'll really enjoy this episode. If you've heard it before, I even think it's worth listening to again. You can also go find Craig on the platform Any Question. You can use code anyquestion.com forward slash r forward slash Craig. Again, that's anyquestion.com forward slash r forward slash Craig and download the app and ask Craig any questions there. And a little bit of housekeeping just before we go on. Thank you for listening and thank you for all the support. You'd be doing me a massive favor if you could share the show. The more listeners I receive, the more likely I can keep this podcast going. And finally, remember... Success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. Without a doubt, my next guest is one of the most recognized names in endurance sport. His resume of achievements is truly remarkable. He has five world championship titles to his name, including three Ironman Kona World Championships and two 70.3 world titles. His resume of wins just never stops going up. Nobody has dominated half Ironman distance racing like this man. Last count, it was over 50-plus Ironman 70.3 wins. He's defying age and continuing to race as a professional at 46 years of age. He's done all of this whilst never sacrificing what's truly important to him, and that's his family and three kids. We trained together numerous times over the past 25 years, and we've competed against each other too many times to count. He's a lifelong friend and a man I truly admire and respect. Welcome to the show, Mr. Craig Alexander. How hey, are you, mate? <laughs> I'm good. I'm really good, man. That is a awesome introduction. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know what? I just it's just your resume. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. I could have tried to downplay it like, I don't know, like he's okay or something, but <laughs> <laughs> no, don't downplay it at all, man. You should be my new publicist. <laughs> oh, mate, where are you now? You're in Sydney? I'm in Sydney, yeah, gearing up for end of the school year for the kids and um, just Christmas. So yeah, we're, as you know, Sydney this time of year is hot, plenty of beach time and outdoor activities. So yeah, everything's good. Are you done for the year of racing? Like you, you've competed still this whole last year. Yeah, I, I raced early in the year. What I found the last few years is I tend to travel a lot towards the middle of the year and the back end of the year, just various trips, some of them promotional, some training camps that I run or, or that I'm a guest at. It's been sort of December, January, February the last few years where I haven't travelled as much and I've, I've just been able to train consistently and, and get in great shape. So I've tended to race earlier in the year, sort of February, March, April the last few years. It's worked well with the schedule. And I mean, racing's not the priority anymore and training's certainly not my day-to-day priority. But as you know, you know, once it's in your blood, we love to do it. I, I train as much for, I guess, mental health and quality of life as anything else. But with, you know, 20-odd years of I guess, great base and great aerobic conditioning. It doesn't take much for me to get in shape. So yeah, I still get on, I still get on the odd start line. I must say, I used to like the training and really love the racing. Now I love the training. So. Hmm. I mean, one of the things we'll talk about a bit today is, uh, how you've been able to keep your passion alive, because I think, you know, when I look back at 
44, I was kind of like, I just started to lose the passion. I, I enjoyed the the hard training and I enjoyed the pushing, but I, I got tired of doing the little things to keep the body in line and, and trying to keep on top of the small things. But, you know, you're at 46 here. It's not like you're just turning up to races either. I mean, you're, you're a front runner and I think you're still winning and being at least on the podium of some big 70.3s around the world. And, and that's what I'm, I'm like totally blown away by the fact that you're still able to pull it all together. And, um, I, I don't know. I, I'm really intrigued to talk about in this show how you're able to keep that passion alive. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things. I think that's the cornerstone. You've got to want to do something. You've got to mm-hmm. want to do everything that's involved to perform at the level that you know you can. And it's like you mentioned, there's a lot of the little one percenters. Uh, I think people call them the one percenters or those little added extras, the little details that at the highest level make all the difference. You know, often when you see, I, first of all, I think our sport or any endurance sport in your late 30s and, and your early 40s, you can certainly be competitive. Your heart and lungs, your engine is still very good. But as you mentioned, it's the body that starts to deteriorate. Um, the wear and tear starts to show. Um, but I think what, what I found is that, you know, it's, it's not so much age. You can't just blame age. That's the low-hanging fruit. It's more the things that come with a certain age, like getting married, having kids, other business opportunities. Uh, maybe you've been doing it for so long that the drive is just not there and you want to experience something else. I think when those things change and then you're not prepared to do those little added extras that you mentioned, that's when the performances can go down. Um, I noticed for me, I did go through a little bit of that when I stopped racing in Kona Hmm. um, over half a decade ago, but then things sort of went full circle. You know, my kids got a little older and I was able to go for easy runs with my oldest daughter. Um, (laughs) and, And for me, that's, I guess... When you say what, what kept me motivated, well, it was was just a desire to run with her and to train with her running group, and that sort of reinvigorated my passion for it. I just loved when she would say, Dad, do you want to go for a run? So I started doing that, and I found a different perspective to it, a different mindset, and just, again, though, with that 20-odd years of good training practices and good aerobic conditioning, it didn't take me much to get in shape, so off the back of that, I was able to race at a very high level. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's, well, you, it's funny, you know, because I, th- I think the mindset is is so key and you've got to want to do something. And if you can find a reason to do it, uh, I certainly haven't found age a, a barrier because my kids are at that age now where my training and those little added extras are not impacting their life as, as perhaps maybe it was five or six or seven years ago. So, Well, you've been a great role model for them. I think, you know, in the way that you've carried yourself in sport as well. It's it's one thing and, and that's what this show is largely about. I'm not just interviewing people that are just winning events. I, I'm interviewing people that I think are, are champion people and the way they conduct themselves. And, um, and I think, you know, I think your eldest daughter, Lucy, is a great example of great parenting and you being a great role model for how her passion for sport, you can already see that desire. And, and, you know, when you guys share a little bit on social media or when I speak to you privately and, you know, the way that she's now, you know, taking up the torch, but obviously you guys are working together as a little bit of a team. I think it's really inspiring. Uh, And you and I have had countless conversations on long rides or runs or over coffee or over the odd beer or two. And, you know, we've lived similar lives. When, When you're a professional athlete, there's a certain... I don't want to say selfishness, but there's a self-centeredness where you're always saying, well, is my training okay? Is Am I sleeping enough? What's my diet like? There's a lot of self-analysis and 
mm. I, I, I. And at some point, I guess, I don't know if you get bored of that, that mindset or, or kids come along and that mindset just changes by necessity. But I certainly know my racing has been invigorated by having a purpose greater than myself to race for. And I found that representing different charities, but I certainly found that with my children wanting to set a good example mm. of, and you know, it's interesting because Lucy has seen her dad win a lot. And I remember the last year in Kona when I, I didn't have a great race, I had a few issues and she was so heartbroken. She was so, um, <laughs> she was inconsolable after the race. And, you know, I thought that this is important for her to see too, though, mm. because mm. she's seen a lot of winning. She needs to understand that it's not all about that, that this is the journey. This is the roller coaster. And if, if I've been able to convey or wanted to convey anything to her and all the kids, it's really just, it's a journey. And I know it's, mm. I guess it's a cliche to say it's all about the outcome and the results. And to some degree, that's how you get judged, but it's more about the journey and what you learn and how you improve and how you overcome setbacks. That's what I want my kids to learn. I want them to learn that durability, that resilience, and hopefully mm. have fun with it as well. I mean, you and I both, I think we thrived on just challenging ourselves, wanting mm. to push ourselves and challenging ourselves. And, and a lot of the, the guys and girls who we trained with or raced with through our, our generation, our era, we, we, I think were wired very similarly. It was about not finding the path of least, least resistance, but finding the hard races, the hard competition, seeking that out and really challenging yourself and, and forcing yourself to improve and be better. For me, that was the fun and the drive. And that's what I want to convey to my kids. And I think I have to, Lucy. Yeah. Well, speaking about your journey, and I, I think uh, what I'd like to sort of do is, is just wind the clock right back and ask you, when, when did you really start to find your passion for endurance sports? What age and, and where were you and what were you doing that you kind of were like, hey, I, I really love this endurance side of things? And that's a great question, you know, because I, I think about growing up and like, like all kids growing up in Australia, you know, because of our climate, um, I think we, we're an outdoorsy sort of culture. Um, at school, we all get taught to swim. You have to swim as part of the curriculum. I, I was mainly passionate about team sports and ball sports though, and, and soccer was my main sport, but I played a bit of tennis, a bit of golf, a little bit of water polo in high school. But soccer was my, my passion. It was my love. I, I played it from when I was six until I was 20. I wanted to be a professional footballer in Europe. <laughs> um, I just, yeah, I was passionate about it. My, my stepdad had been a semi-professional and he coached me through my early years. And, but I was always interested in endurance intervention though, because I used, to, I used to love to watch the cool and get a gold on television, which as you know, and for those of us who've grown up in Australia, it's, it's surf Ironman racing, surf sports. It's their longest event. It's a four-hour event. And it was kind of an iconic event that they, they ended up making a movie about. Yeah. Uh, and I used to love watching that every year. I used to love to watch the cool and get a gold. But I was also intrigued by marathon running and, you know, triathlon was getting a lot of airtime back then too because we had a lot of great Australian athletes doing amazing things overseas. So it wasn't unusual to flick the TV on on the weekend and see the Hawaiian Ironman or even some of our local series that we had. We had national series that were televised and I was always interested in that idea of pushing yourself when it got uncomfortable and trying to outlast the competition. And I know all through high school, even though I, I was a soccer player, you know, I did well at the athletics carnivals and, and the cross-country carnivals, particularly um, cross-country. And I just, I liked to push myself. And it wasn't, you know, I used, to, I used to make it through to, I guess, zone regional and then the state championships. And it wasn't until I actually came up against runners, people who trained seriously that I would get beaten. But 
Mm. I did enjoy that aspect of, you know, going the distance and pushing yourself and, and seeing how, and it wasn't really even about trying to win it. It was just, I was interested to see how far I could run and, and then how quickly I could cover that distance. And when it got uncomfortable, how far past that point could I push myself? And um, so it was, I guess it was like a little side project, but I considered myself a soccer player up until I was, I was 20. Um, and then, yeah, that didn't work out. And I was laboring for a builder um, during the university holidays and hurt myself. I was a full-time uni student at that point. I hurt myself, had to have an operation. And um, for someone who'd grown up very active, that was hard because I didn't, I didn't get to do any sort of sport for, I think it was about four or five months in the end. And I just started running to get back into shape. And that running, that jogging every third day started becoming every second day. And then I was running every day. Um, before I knew it, I was doing biathlons, swim run races, which as you know, in the 90s, in the mid 90s, there were just a lot of those races all around Australia um, at the beaches and different events everywhere. And I did 12 months of that sort of racing before I ever did a, a triathlon. That's incredible. I think a, a lot of Australians, we do grow up, like you said, almost like we we touch on every kind of sport. And, and I think you and I are fairly similar in some respects in that we we both have reasonably big egos, but we've managed them fairly well. Like I wouldn't say you're, and I, and I mean that in a, in a, a nice way. I don't know that people understand. I, I often say a really good bike group to train with is one that has tons of ego in it, but everybody knows how to manage their egos mm. because it, without the ego the, and that self-drive and that wanting to self-fulfill or push yourself or take yourself to the knife's edge, it's very hard to improve. And I've always thought of you and I very similar like that, that we, we have these, this kind of drive within us to test ourselves to go beyond where we've been before. And that's just often we're using others to measure ourselves and uh, that helps us try and be better. And that's why we've got to surround ourselves, like you mentioned earlier, with finding the best people and and best training locations. And I, I think, you know, with you, you've always had that ability to have that tiny chip on the shoulder or whatever it is, but manage it well to keep getting more out of yourself. And and that's what I, I've loved about watching on your career build over the years. And w- was there a time that you were like, huh, I'm actually, I got some strengths in this. I, I'm fairly talented in, you know, this biathlon, triathlon running type world. Was there a moment where you're like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably good at this, be- beating the neighbours or, or whatever it may be? Uh, that's a good question. You know, I think... I think I'm a mixture of all those things you mentioned. I, I definitely did have a, a belief that I could be a, a really good endurance athlete and that I could improve a lot and that I hadn't even scratched the surface, particularly when I started. And I thought, you know, in some ways we choose a sport, but in some ways a sport chooses us as well because of our geti- genetics, I guess, and our, our motivations and drives, what's driving us, what do we love to do. I don't think I ever started out, especially the first couple of years in the sport, thinking, oh, I'm going to be a world champion in this, but I had a drive to be better. I certainly had an appetite for hard work, which is a good thing in an endurance sport. Um, but as I, as I progressed through the sport, I, I did, I think I was very fortunate that I was able to meet great athletes and train with them. You know, I know I got called into an Australian team camp very early on in my career. I'd, I was at university, I, I think it was 1995, and you'll remember this race. It was the first ITU race they had at the Sydney Opera House. Mm. And it was actually my first race where... I was given a pro card and I was allowed to race. I was invited to race there and I finished eighth. You finished seventh. I don't, you probably don't remember. But you, you, <laughs> I you, think, you, I, we've shared this story, I think. Yeah, I, I remember 
running with you. And just, just so people know, I think you and I first raced against each other in end of 93 at the Deakin Hill Spa Triathlon in uh, Canberra. Was it end of 93 or start of 94? It was, it was right it was, between. I think well, I thought it was end of 94, but you've got a good memory. Let's go with, we'll go with well, your date. I remember it was right before the Tui's Blue Grand Prix, which was our live professional series we had in Australia. And I just qualified for it. And mm. that might've been the end of 94. Now I'm getting all my years confused, but it was around that period. And, and I remember meeting you in transition and you came over to borrow my pump, which wasn't That's the right. first time actually at all the races. I mean, sorry, it was the first time of many times in all the races <laughs> we competed against. <laughs> I don't think you ever brought your pump. But anyway, I remember meeting you then and I was hanging out with the Balmoral Triathlon Club. And uh, at the time, Simon Whitfield was my, you know, number one training partner and had been for a year or two. And then we kind of met you and, and you started, even though you were kind of the other side of the bridge in Sydney, for people that don't know geography, there's kind of the Harbour Bridge that separates the North and the the South side of the city. And, and I lived on the North side with Simon Whitfield and we were part of this Balmoral Triathlon Club. And we met you and I met you in transition at this race and we kind of hit it off almost from the get go. And, uh, and I, I was doing that race to prepare for this series. And I think it, for you, it was a very early on type race. I think you were, must've been in your first few races that you'd ever done. Yeah. It was one of my and, first. Yeah. But then I think you liked sort of what you saw with the Balmoral Triathlon Club. And I, you know, from that moment on for the next couple of years, you ventured over to the North side a few times for training with us and, and, uh, the coach we had over there, run coach, we had Rob Higley, who was a phenomenal coach, but, um, that was very early on, but <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I mean, and that, that's what I was alluding to. I just, I think, you know, people say things happen for a reason and, and there's a lot of chance. I mean, I got lucky. I, I met you I met you, and, I mean, you just finished 14th in the world or maybe it was the following year. So you were already world class and had one of the quickest bike splits at the Wellington World Championships. But we met in transition. We hit it off. I just liked the way you were just so friendly and a few of the other members of the Balmoral Tri Club were there, sort of took me in with open arms and... I was so raw and I thought, oh, they, these guys are so nice, invited me over to train. So I did. I made the trek over and, and what a what a power group that was. Mm. You know, obviously you were there, Simon Whitfield, Darren Carnell, myself. We had a lot of world-class athletes, but I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. I, I got lucky and I, I found myself in this group training with uh, you who were already one of the best in the world, Simon who was showing unbelievable promise and and Darren as well, he qualified for the televised series. And, and I think what you learn is in that sort of high-performance environment, people do have a self-belief, an ego, you can call it what you will, but we're also we're a, a really tight-knit little unit. We're almost like a team when we train together. We helped each other out. We helped each other get better. Mm. And, and I think that's what you were mentioning. That's where you need to park the ego mm. sometimes. And to get the most out of the sessions, you, you work together. And so I always, I always did have a belief that I could be a good endurance athlete you know, I think everyone struggles with, with doubts at different times throughout their life and certainly as an athlete throughout your career. But one thing I think I'm most proud of throughout my career is I was able to drop the ego and, and ask for advice. Like, I mean, you would remember me asking you a million questions. And, you know, when I was lucky enough to find myself in a situation and particularly a good learning environment with better athletes, more experienced athletes, yeah, I wasn't scared to, show, I guess, be vulnerable and ask questions and try and learn um, mm. because it's a hard sport, you know. I, I did that first ITU race in Sydney and I finished eighth and then I didn't do one for 12 months. I was still a full-time uni student and I got invited to one 12 months later in Auckland, um, New Zealand, and I finished fourth. 
behind, I think Miles Stewart won that one, Hamish Carter was on the podium and, you know, on the face of it, they look like two great results, um, your first two World Cup races, but I was a young raw athlete and I was very inconsistent and it wasn't long before guys like yourself and Miles figured me out and if the bike ride was hard, I, I, I couldn't run well. And you will remember there was that one season when um, Craig Walton and Miles and yourself would, would jump off the front of the group and make the bikes, those, even though, the, you know, drafting had just come into the sport, you know, the more experienced guys and the better guys would make it such a hard race that it wasn't just a running race. It was a, it was a pure triathlon and, you know, it was a steep learning curve for me. Whilst those first two results were good, I, I knew I had a lot of learning to do and particularly, you know, you hear people talk about natural talent and I think in a lot of things in life and endurance sports, one of them, you know, you hear people talk about the 10,000 hour rule or you just mm. got to log the hours at some point and get that strength and that aerobic conditioning to be able to match it with the big boys and, and, you know, the athletes who are world-class. I guess I had that understanding from my uni degree. We'd done a little bit of around the principles of endurance training. So I understood how building fitness worked and, and all those sorts of things, periodization and strength, you know, aerobic conditioning, speed work, recovery technique. And you also mm. understand it's a patience game. You, there's no cheating the system. You've got to log, log the hours. And mm. that's one thing I noticed with the current generation and the generations that have followed us because the sport got more professional and it evolved into an Olympic sport and a lot of great things. There are now, there are now pathways, which I, I see my daughters going through. They have triathlon in schools. They have triathlon as college scholarship sports um, at U.S. colleges and I think the, the coaching starts earlier. They identify the talent a lot earlier and get them on that pathway to proper coaching, proper technique, and which was something we didn't have. And, you know, we've reminisced about this a lot, for better or worse. I mean, we came through in an era where the sport was really finding its feet. And it was a really fun time to race because we were no less serious and no less motivated and certainly worked hard. What One thing I've noticed, I think the sport's definitely probably a lot more polished now um, mm. with these pathways. And But I wouldn't change the era that I raced in and... I was just lucky. I was lucky that I got to train with athletes who I'd only read about in magazines or watched on television. And then next thing you know, I find I'm in a training group, training environment with them and, and learning from them. And so it was easy for me to drop the ego and try and learn from, from these athletes because I wanted to emulate them. I mean, you, you, you say lucky. And just so I can kind of clarify that for everybody listening is there's one word I'd describe as for you and and that I've seen over the last 25, 26 years. And, and, and that word is perseverance. Because like you said, there was 12 months between those World Cup sort of results that you had. And then there was a little bit of sort of up and down sort of through the late 90s where we kept seeing some ability in you and, and obviously you had tremendous work ethic but that consistency wasn't there. And then in the early noughties, we just started to see a little bit more consistency. And then obviously by 2006, you know, you're winning world titles and, and you're truly on your way by then. And, and it's one of those things, you know, we're talking about, you know, a 93, 94 when you sort of started triathlon and we're talking, not that you hadn't won big races before 06, you won Minneapolis, you'd won Chicago, you'd won big, big races. But for me, when you won that world title, that was a huge turning page. And, and I think you create your own luck to some degree. And I think what you did was take advantage of opportunities. You saw an opportunity to work with myself and Simon and, and those guys at Balmoral Triathlon Club. You saw opportunities within Triathlon Australia at certain times when, when, when they weren't shutting doors. But, and then you saw opportunities when you know, Ironman 70.3 turned around and, and you went for it. And 
that's the one thing I've loved about watching your career is this progression and this steady progression of keeping the passion alive and keep chipping away. And and the other thing I want to touch on, and, and I got to pinch myself every now and then, you know, we we talk about Balmoral Triathlon Club and yourself, me, Darren Carnell, Simon Whitfield, but specifically the three of us, Simon Whitfield, yourself and me, and and we all kind of went through the same kind of running coach and the same kind of start of our career together. And I'll never forget sort of sitting back in 2010 and looking going, wow, you know, here's Simon Whitfield with a, a gold and a silver, you know, Olympic medal. Here's Craig Alexander with five world titles, um, you know, in the Ironman distance and 70.3 distances. And I kind of had gone off and specialized a little bit more in the Olympic non-drafting and, and that we'd all kind of gone in the different areas of the sport. But, you know, 10 to 15 years earlier, we'd all been kind of three young people face kids trying to figure it out together. And, and, and that journey kind of, you know, that catalyst was Balmoral Triathlon Club that really sort of started our journeys together. And I think that's, for me, a really remarkable story in itself that, you know, three young guys were able to go off and, and forge their path on the world circuit. And, and I love that. And um, I, you mentioned, you know, you came to me for advice and, and things back then, but I don't know if you remember, but 2012 when I decided, you know, at 40 to give this Ironman thing a go and I was all over you on those long rides asking every question under the sun about how to do how to do an Ironman and, and I think you were the most open page book I've ever worked with in terms of helping advice and the other guy that was with me was a young Timothy O'Donnell who's gone on to do bigger and better things mm. at Ironman Kona as well and, uh, you know, you really – if I gave you advice in the late 90s, you certainly gave it back tenfold uh, in 2012. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you, you mentioned a few good things. I think firstly, you know, when my soccer career ended, I, I wouldn't say I was resentful or bitter, but I felt that maybe I hadn't been resilient enough when things got tough. I just presumed if you were going to be world class, it was a road paved with gold with no obstacles. You know, when I started into triathlon in my early 20s, I, one commitment I made to myself was just I just want to be resilient. I want to, I want to ride out the storm a little better. And I was, I was older and more mature, and I think I had more insight into, you know, the fact that even the best in the world have so many obstacles and challenges, probably more so, and they just, they just stay the course and overcome them. Mm. Uh, I think when you're younger, you just you see success and you think, oh, it's so easy for those people. They're just so <laughs> naturally talented. Everything's so easy and but it's not that way. You need someone to whisper in your ear and say, no, no, it's not like that at all. Mm. They're just the most patient, the most p- persistent. They've persevered the longest. They've overcome the most hurdles. Mm. Um, and so that was one commitment I made going into my triathlon career. And another one was I, having studied physiotherapy and a little bit of physiology, I knew how endurance training worked and that accumulation of fitness over time. So when I jumped into it and I was racing – some guys a little older, some guys a little young, some were much older. The more established guys were 10 years older. They were just more experienced, had more aerobic conditioning and were better than me at the time. And I, mm. I was honest enough with myself to accept that and understand that, you know, it was going to be like building a house one brick at a time. I just had to be patient. And so long as I could see improvement within myself, it's okay to compare yourself to others. But I think ultimately you need to come back and compare yourself to prior versions of you. Mm. And am I improving? Is my strength getting better? What were my weaknesses last year? Have I addressed those? You know, at least I was able to look back at my own journey and see all the while that I was steadily improving. Mm. 
sometimes more quickly than other times. Uh, sometimes you plateau out, even regress a little bit. Um, mm. But I just stayed the course, you know, and I was still a full-time uni student until 97. Uh, and then I had part-time jobs all the way through. And in 1999, when you guys all were chasing the Olympics and the ITU circuit, I stayed at home and, and labored for a builder that winter. So I didn't train at all full time. And, uh, but that was part of my bigger plan though. So, you know, I'd just been, Mary and I just got married earlier that year and I didn't want to travel to Europe or North America and disappear for six months. So my plan was to stay home and hibernate a little bit over winter in 99. And whilst in the short term, that was probably going to mean that the gap between where I was and where world class was, was widening. I just felt in the long term, you know, from an emotional standpoint, my marriage, knowing that I had a, just I had a long-term plan, I, that was the better decision. And mm. it's at those moments where you need to, to drop the ego as well. You, you mentioned ego and I was able to just take emotion out of it, which is sometimes very hard to do when you're so passionate about something mm-hmm. and look at it. And that's when you also need very wise people in your corner and someone to whisper, you know, wise words in your ear. Um, and I was lucky enough, I always had those mentors around me and those people who would take me under their wing and I could see that the, I, was, I was trending in the right direction and mm. I had a lot of catching up to do to, to a lot of athletes. A lot, as you know, I mean, a, a lot of the guys we raced and, and the girls who were racing at that, at that time didn't, didn't get groomed as triathletes from the age of 10 or 12 like a lot of the modern-day heroes are or were, didn't come through the all-schools sort of pathway or university or college scholarships came into the sport in their teens or early 20s usually having excelled at one of the three disciplines in triathlon either swimming cycling or running that's how most people ended up in triathlon mm. yeah it's different and I, these days and, and and you've mentioned you know the the kind of the the system that they have in place these days and and how and the difference between how we all came through without those kind of systems and structure in place and i'm i'm, I'm really curious as to see what's going on with I, I, I feel like burnout is at a much higher rate. I feel like young athletes are, you know, they're, they're trying to squeeze as much as they can out by the age of 22, 23, and then they're kind of already getting washed up by 23, 24. And as you know, you know, the golden 30s, uh, if you can make it there, that's when really the big results come. So it's a matter of keeping the passion alive until – you hit your thirties, you know, I didn't win the world series until I was, yeah, 30 and then 31. And, and I think you were winning, you know, your first world title at around that 32 or something as well. I'm not sure what, how old exactly you were, but I'm seeing more and within the United States here with the, the college system, you know, the colleges, if they give you a degree, if they give you a scholarship to be an athlete, they want performances, you know, they want to have you, you deliver a performance in those four years that you're at college and and they're kind of going to be demanding. And and some of the things I'm still up in the air about some of these systems that the federations have, I'm up in the air about the, the college system, is it the right path for a lot of kids when I look back at our way that we went through, which was kind of like, let's go race and let's love the sport. It's such a good point. And I think it's the topic of a lot of discussion around high performance at the moment within our sport, because it's the very nature of it depends who the major stakeholder in your career is. If, if you're in a national federation and getting funding through that, they basically can dictate to you what they want you to do. And, mm. you know, a lot of those systems are set up around Olympic cycles, four-year cycles, and they want results right now. 
Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned it with college scholarships. They, they give you free board and tuition, but in return you need to get results mm-hmm. immediately for the school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can sometimes be in conflict to the greater good, if you will. And 100%. In, in a sport like ours, yeah, the, the 30s, I mean, you can win big races in your 20s, but there's no reason why you should be retired by 30 because they are golden years if you can stay in the sport. And I, I think mm-hmm. a lot of it too is I noticed, you know, when, when I started in the sport, triathlon had just been accepted in, into the Olympics, which, which is a great thing. We now have status as an Olympic sport and triathlon has evolved over the 40s into a lot of great things and that's one of them. But I certainly didn't grow up watching the Olympics. Like if you're a 20-year-old kid now, you know, triathlon next year in Tokyo is going into its sixth Olympic Games, so you've only seen it in the Olympics. Mm, As I mentioned true. to you before, I grew up watching Hawaii and the cool and get a gold and other endurance events. So I had a different passion and a different mindset around what goals I wanted to achieve and, and just w- really what I wanted to do. But I also think it reflects on where the sport's at as well. I mean, that, that's another conversation. Mm. I'm not wanting to go off on too many different tangents, but you and I were the beneficiaries of, of a couple of great races where we won huge prize purses, which enabled us to still be in the sport in mm-hmm. our 30s. I mean, I know when I, I won Lifetime Fitness, at the time it was the highest prize purse in the history of our sport. Uh, mm-hmm. It was the first time a race had been live on television. And then you went and even one up that when you won the series a couple of years later. Mm. Um, so we, we were lucky that from a financial standpoint, and, and there just seemed to be those sorts of races and those opportunities where if you were good enough to win, you didn't have to rely on the government funding or the federation funding. You could you could be the master and commander of your own career and do the races that you, you wanted to do. I guess it, it comes back to the starting point needs to be what path you want to take and where you see your goals and ambitions and what really just floats your boat, what kind of racing you love to do and what and kind of tracing. And that's being honest with yourself about not just what you're passionate about, but also where your strengths lie. You know, I consult with a lot of young athletes now and and I say consult rather than coach because I, I prefer consulting in the sense that, you know, when, when I consult somebody, they're still in control of their life. Whereas when I coach somebody, I'm having to take the reins for them. And, and so I, I much prefer being a consultant. But anyway, a lot of them, you know, like, oh, and they're beating up on their federations, whether it be British, American or Australian, everybody seems to have a, a bee in their bonnet about the federation they're working with. And and I'm starting to say, well, hang on, you know, if 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 you're struggling to get starts or, you know, you, you know, it's, it's hard to go through that ITU, the short course Olympic type pathway, you know, maybe you are better off going the, the Ironman 70.3 or the, the challenge system of racing. Um, you know, our sport has various avenues that you can go to and maybe when you align your passions with your strengths, maybe that's, you know, and then take hundred percent responsibility for your life. Maybe that's the direction you need to go. And so I've steered a number of guys away from beating their heads against a brick wall with these federations and trying to get to the Olympics to go, Hey, you love the sport let's go this route and they're happier for it and they're performing better for it because they've, they've identified where their, their true talents and abilities are. And I guess that leads me into the next question for you, which is, was there a point that you can kind of remember, okay, I'm going to go all in here. I'm going to pull the trigger and, and this is going to be my career and I'm going to do everything I can to be the greatest I can be. Or was it little pats on the back? Because we're all kind of different in the way we approach it. No, it was, it was the former. I, when I started doing those biathlons and, and then that led into triathlon, 
I got a pro license within 12 months. And, and next thing you know, I'm in World Cups. And as I mentioned, my first two World Cups were, were actually my first three World Cups were top tens mm. against much more experienced and, and just flat out better athletes. But I managed to get myself in the top 10. So th- don't be mistaken, though. I didn't delude myself to think I'd arrived. I knew I had a long way to go. But what it told me was, you know, you know, I think I'm, I have a talent for this sport. I certainly know I have a passion for it. Mm. So I am going to go all in. I'm not going to mm. have regrets like I did around my soccer career and other things where I felt I hadn't exhausted all the opportunities and perhaps hadn't been resilient enough or patient enough. And at the end of the day, who knows if you're going to win the races that you want to win. Uh, no, none of us know that, but all we can hope to do is just fulfill potential. And that's what I was committed on. I, so that's where my mindset shifted a little bit. It wasn't even around me evaluating this and thinking, well, you know, I've got this uni degree, so if I go the sports pathway, I better win world titles, otherwise it's going to be a failure. No, (laughs) my mindset was just pursue it with passion, learn, be a sponge, take in as much information as you can, be a great learner, work hard and improve. A quick mini break to just go check out any question. You can find any question on the App Store and you can download it there or you can use anyquestion.com forward slash r forward slash Craig to ask Craig any questions from this podcast. They're, they're the three things I love to discuss. Obviously, passion is number one, but following a passion without having a knowledge of your if you if you don't have the talents or strengths to match that passion then you're just living on your parents credit cards you know so you got to be true to yourself and then the final thing is is really like you said when you when you take full control of your life when you say okay i'm going to be 100% responsible for all my thoughts my choices my actions i'm going to learn from the greatest i'm going to be amongst the best when you put all of that together, and that seems to be the common thread amongst the champion athletes I speak with, is this, they have a passion that's just overwhelmingly, the desire is huge. They're aligning it with with, with some raw talent because I, I truly believe you can't put in what God left out. I mean, there has to be some yeah, ability absolutely. there. But then there's also that final piece to the puzzle where it's just like, right, I am going to live my life with intent. I am going to live my life with taking full control over what I can control. And and that's a very big difference maker, it seems to me. It seems to me that there's a lot of athletes out there that are, have talent, they love the sport, but they often hand over their, their life almost to a coach or to a federation or to sponsors or somebody else, and they're not actually taking full control of themselves. And, and so I think you've nailed it with the way you've presented it there is that I wanted to learn from the best and I started figuring out how I had to move on. I love that. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't think I've ever met a high performer in any field, whether it be sport or business or anything, that didn't take full accountability and responsibility mm. for their life, their decisions. And you may look at it and say, well, you know, I've met a few different high performers and they all have these things in common. Well, I mean, what led to what? I think they ended up in the positions they were in because of their thought processes. I certainly... No, when when I chose going to the US and, and, and different career paths, you have to be accountable and take ownership of those decisions. And then you, you can't be looking around blaming everybody else. I mean, every athlete you speak to has got a hard luck story. We've, we've all got one. We've all mm-hmm. been there. Mm-hmm. But you've got to take ownership of the situation and, and become the driver of the ship yourself and, and say, I'm not going to be a victim. I'm going to make things happen. I'd always watched Hawaii and I, I didn't think I was going to go – and do Hawaii immediately. 
Um, you know, when I first got to the US in the early 2000s, I just really loved the racing over there, Chicago, mm-hmm. Lifetime Fitness, LA, Boston. There were great races, St. Croix. I, I really found my niche over there. I loved the non-drafting races. And, you know, there was, as you mentioned right off the top, there was no official half Ironman or 70.3 world title until 2006. And, you know, I'd always, early in my career, I got some advice from Greg Welsh, actually. He said to me, don't pigeonhole yourself to one style of racing. Try and, mm. you know, mix it up. So I, I did. I tried to do non-drafting, drafting, triple super sprints. I, I remember doing, you know, my first half Ironman, I think it was the New South Wales Long Course Champ. It was a week before we had a, an Accenture Series race. Mm. Um, or the St. George series, it was, as it was called then. And, you know, I was just mixing it up. I was trying different things. And I think you've just got to take ownership of your own direction. And, and I understand, you know, you, you told the story about the athletes you spoke to and they, they feel sort of beholden or I guess a slave for want of the better of a word to their federation. They need to take ownership of their own situation and understand that, you know, the federation's not against them. They have an agenda, which is to win medals. And they mm-hmm. get money from the government based on winning medals in the next Olympic cycle. Mm-hmm. And their decisions are based around that and that alone, not on the whims of each individual athlete or their long-term progression. Or mm-hmm. So when, when goals don't clearly line up between different entities, you, you often get problems. I think it takes a while for us as athletes to realise that in the real world, you, you learn it pretty quickly in, in a place of employment. Um, you know, everyone has to get on the same page pretty quickly and you understand what the goals of the organisation are that you're working for and you know, it can be harder as an athlete because you're on your own and, and sometimes you feel, especially with the, the system, the way it's set up, but you need to take ownership and either take heed of the advice you're getting from the high performance manager within your federation if it's a particular thing you need to work on or a particular performance parameter or level that you need to attain. You need to just focus on doing that mm. or find a different style of racing to go and do it. And like you say, have an honest conversation about where your passion is and where your strengths lie and and head in that direction. I don't think you can have a successful career in a mindset based on high performance and excellence when you give yourself the option of blaming others all the time. There is no option. It's you and you alone, and you need mm-hmm. to get on board with that idea. And when you do, things will change for the better very quickly. Yeah. See, I mean, that, that's what I, I, I think, you know, when we talk to these younger athletes and um, is trying to say, look, take responsibility for you everything you're doing. And, and one of those areas that I kind of want to, I'm really curious about you is um, obviously it's an individual sport and it's you alone out there doing the, the individual training and, and of course on the race course, but none of us have done it without, you know, strong support around us. And I'm curious about, you know, your team, both um, your family and, uh, and the roles that they've played and, and also the team of experts that you've built around you and how you you have learned from these people and how they've been there for you over you know the past three decades um and how that's evolved and changed so i'm curious about that yeah well again it's another great question because i think having a great support network it's, it's non-negotiable if you want sustained long-term success or high performance you need that and, and i think for every athlete i know for for myself personally it started at home with my wife neri I mean, we've been married 20 years. We've been together 25 years. It's like a life sentence <laughs> when, you, when you say it out loud like that. But, um, you know, I was, I was very lucky. N- Neri, we, we sort of started the journey together. She supported me the whole way. And she understood, too, it was going to take a while. She saw I'd come into the sport from another sport. 
And she was the one who would often say, and she had so much insight into me. Obviously, she knew me well, but also the sport. She would say, you know, when I would get sort of down or depressed about the way my career was going or, you know, results. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because you can talk about getting results. And I remember many results that were top 15s or, or even top 10s at World Cup races where, now, on the face of it, that's a great result, but you're really not making a lot of money at that point with a with a sixth or a seventh or an eighth. And you're thinking, well, I've got this uni degree. What should I be doing? Um, mm-hmm. But Neri was always so supportive and said, you know, you're, you're improving. That's the main thing. You need to key mm-hmm. in on on those parameters, not not just the result. She had so much uh, insight into just it, our whole situation, and not only the sport, but but myself as a person, she knew what made me tick, and but I knew I had that support, that unconditional support, which I think is it's all important. It's it's crucial. You don't you don't do anything for a long period of time, and you certainly don't do it well without that just emotional, unconditional support. And you know, I, I was so lucky to get that from my wife. Um, was with me every step of the way, and and for me, that's what was the most fun part of all the winning when it eventually came was getting to share it with, with her in particular, mm. but also the other people who'd been involved. But yeah, no, Neri was the main, she was my rock. And then there was my family and her family. Her family were amazing coming to the races, supporting me, you know, in, in the later years when we were overseas for six months of the year, because, you know, for the longest time, the sport followed a Northern hemisphere season or Northern hemisphere summer. So that meant relocating mm. away from home, Either my mum or her mum would come over and stay with us or, or one of her sisters would come and visit and it just made things so much easier on me. I didn't feel the burden of that selfishness of taking her away from her family and taking the kids away from their cousins. And so mm. our families collectively always made it very easy for me and just that, that support meant, meant the world and, and, and you need it. You can't, you can't do it without that support. So I was lucky on that front and then professionally, you know, I've been with my manager, Franco, for over a decade and he's been like a great friend. So, you know, from the business standpoint, the business aspect, having someone who I just trust implicitly, who values loyalty and honesty above all else, I think, you know, it's important. You mentioned it before. You've got to partner with people, I think, whose values align with yours. And then the, the smaller details can work, work themselves out. But mm. those core values have to be aligned and like with a great friendship, right? I mean, great mm. friendships become untenable if, you know, your core values aren't aligned with, with the people over time, with, with your friends. I mean, friendships end, uh, uh, friendships end because of things like that. So, yeah, I was just lucky on, on the professional and business front. I had Franco and then a, a great core group of friends as well who were supportive, who would come and watch me race anywhere around the world and just support me via emails and, and, and those little things that, Mm. make the world of difference as you know those those yeah. little shots in the arm that you need when you know you're in a long training phase and maybe you're tired and emotional and just to weather a storm you, you mm. need you need people in your corner and I, I was so lucky to have those people and then I guess more specifically on the sporting front I always had access to the best people in the sport through training or racing and then they became mentors to me and you know I'm forever grateful just people taking me under their wing, telling me often not what I wanted to hear, but what I needed to hear, you know, those hard conversations, <laughs> those honest conversations that yeah. we all have from time yeah. to time, or if we don't, we need to. And yeah. Yeah. Um, 
you know, when, when you know people have no agenda other than your happiness or to support you, mm. I think those, those tough conversations or those messages land a little better. Well, that's um, why we often talk about our experts is you can have people that are experts in their field that they can be useful. But if you have experts that you work with that truly want the best for you, and, and, you know, I can give examples of a massage therapist that I think even you've used in, in Boulder, Colorado, uh, Marcus Mejias from Venezuela and a lovely guy. And, you know, after a couple of bike crashes I had over the years, and, and he's the kind of guy that would drop everything, come to my home every evening, you know, for half an hour just to work on my body and get me back going. Um, you know, a bike mechanic of mine that would drop everything and fly to races with me for very little money just to make sure I had the very best setup. Like people that truly wanted to see you be successful, that just loved being a part of what you were doing. And and that that for me, you know, when I look back at those people that uh, my chiropractor down here in Florida, Alex Keith, they, these people were, it wasn't for the money. It, it certainly wasn't for glory the whole time because you and I both know that for every win, there's probably you know, 10 major fails, but it, it, it was kind of like having the experts in their field, but they actually truly want the best for you is so empowering. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think when you feel that, I mean, it all starts with you as the athlete and we've said that that's been a recurring theme that we've talked about, but when, when you truly step up and step outside your comfort zone and, and set yourself challenging goals, people who care about you will come out of the woodwork to help you. It has to start with you, but you will get so much help that it is empowering. It's actually quite emotional to think that people would go the extra yard for you like that. Mm. It's inspiring. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, they they play a huge part, and I was lucky. I had great mentors in the sport and in life, people I could lean on who I knew just who loved me and had had only my best interests Mm. at heart. So, again, you know, we could have a tough conversation and drop the pretense, drop the the egos and, and just get down to the business of, you know, speaking about performance or it might even just be a conversation around emotional support or, or whatever it is you might need at the time. But, mm. but that, you know, that support you talk about, it, it's like an onion. It's layered. And, mm-hmm. and at its core, it, it usually, well, for me, it started with the family and then there were just layers upon layers <laughs> of people who you're similar to me. You know, we raced at that level, at that world-class level for over two decades. That group that you that you relied on that you counted on and who helped you it it becomes quite a big group and you know you're so thankful for it because you know and I think maybe this comes with age or insight or experience or all of those things Um, I certainly know I felt this early in my career as well just a gratitude to those people who had no Mm. agenda other than to help really Mm. and and wanted to help and always went above and beyond to help and you really do feel that and that lifts you yeah. The one thing I've always noticed with you is your relationship with your wife, Neri, um, and that really strong teamwork that you guys have had together. And and yes, it's you crossing the finishing line tape and, and taking the accolades, but you've always been very, um, very humble in the way that you've shared that and always made made it out that look Neri is should be up on this podium with me kind of thing you because like I remember you guys in the late 90s and you you know you were the, this young couple that you know were kind of I mean to understand where you were coming from like almost living from mill to mill you know with races and I think Neri was working as a full-time nurse yeah, and, and supporting you and 
and just to watch that journey of the two of you together and now with three beautiful kids, it's really been a, um, a really beautiful story to watch, you know, and I think, yes, your name is one of the most famous names in endurance sport, but people don't have to dig very far to see, hang on, it's Neri's right there with you. You know, it's, it's like you're, you're a famous couple to some degree in our sport. Yeah. Well, I just, I truly mean it when I say I, I wouldn't have achieved anything without her. She was emotional support when I needed that, which was always, she was loving and nurturing and caring. She was honest feedback when I would ask. And, and I mean, she was everything. She was everything. And I'm, I'm so glad that we got to travel together. Uh, and I'm so glad she got to experience it with me because my wins were our wins. They, mm. they were, we shared them. And um, I know she feels that way and I'm so glad she does. It's been really fantastic just, just to, to watch and see. But, um, you know, what, what, what I'd like to do now is, is just ask a couple of kind of questions for those that are interested, um, more, more so about uh, some of your fundamentals of how you've been able to sustain your career. And, and so the first sort of question I have is, is talking about your sleep and recovery. You know, do you measure your sleep quality or are you using wearables or do you just, you know, make sure you get sort of seven to eight, nine hours, good sleep a night? How does that work for you? I don't wear wearables and, and I'm not against it either. Um, I think innovation and technology is a great thing. We can certainly go overboard with it, but if, if you know exactly what it is you're measuring and how to interpret it and use it to get better, I'm a big fan of it. Yeah. Um, it's just I never had heart rate monitors or any of those things early in my career and I learned to do without them. Mm. Later in my career, I certainly utilized heart rate monitors and power meters and things like that. With my sleep, I just, I just set myself the benchmark of a minimum of eight hours mm. and I always wanted that. And it's not always possible as we know, but that was my, that was my benchmark and then I would try and get extra sleep in the afternoon as well. And that's one of the things where Neri was immense. She was instrumental, uh, particularly in the Ironman. Later in my career, the Ironman training blocks, when the kids were young, we would time the training. It was, it was a full household commitment. She would <laughs> look at my training program and we would time my afternoon nap with the kids' nap or she would take the kids out so I could have a sleep. Wow. I think sleep is – look, there's a lot of great recovery tools and techniques, but the cornerstone is of any great recovery protocol is sleeping and eating you need to get those two things mm. really dialed in and um yeah i tried to get as much sleep as possible yeah uh, i think you've just nailed it on the second question i had it's like yes i think this, this is why I'm, I'm actually asking them in this order because i think you're right i think it's like prioritize the sleep no matter what um it's amazing how the world can seem overwhelming when you're not getting enough sleep and how yeah. much you might want to bicker or fight with your partner or you know, just things that just uh, life is so much harder without the prioritizing the sleep and, and actually sitting down and looking at your every day and how it works with the family to make sure you have the time to make sleep a priority, you know, and it's, I've designed a lot of training programs with people where we actually sit down and we go, no, you're not going to do that 9.30 p.m., you know, work out on the bike in the garage. It's better for you to go get sleep. And they're like, really? Yeah. So, yeah. You know, it really is. And then let's get up in the morning and let's do 20 minutes or something. But the priority has to be sleep. And and then the second priority, yeah, the nutrition. So in terms of fueling, is there any sort of, I mean, I, I've seen you eat everything and you seem to have a gut that can, that can take down anything. Do you have anything that like in terms of nutrition that you do special or? Not really. I, I, first of all, I think it's important 
to sort of understand it's not a one-size-fits-all. Um, mm. We're all different. We're different as athletes. We're different as people emotionally, physiologically, nutritionally. So it's about finding out what works really well for you. And for me, just an, a well-balanced, I won't even use the word diet, just well-balanced eating plan, I would say, mm. um, a, li- a little bit of all the different food groups. When I was in the really heavy training phases, I'd make sure I had plenty of calories coming in. I'd, I'd supplement between meals with protein shakes, bananas, berries, yogurt, protein powder, a good quality protein powder, you know, so all of those things. And, and mm. I mean, breakfast was always super important meal, but also, you know, the metabolic requirements of your training as well. Often I would, I would get up and have a coffee and do my first session and then have breakfast after that. Yeah. Um, just to yeah. teach my body, particularly in the later years, to metabolize or burn fat as a fuel um, at higher and higher percentages of of your threshold heart rate. I think all good endurance athletes need to be able to do that because you can only store two hours worth of carbs. And but yeah, it's, I think it's just understanding it's an individual thing. And and like anything too, I think it's important to bring up a self awareness. I think one of the greatest qualities you can have as an athlete, and probably as a person for that matter, is to to understand yourself, what it is that makes you tick and mm. what it is that you want. I knew I wanted a very long career. Um, I wanted to race for a long time and contest major races for a long time. So that that means having sustainable um, plans around everything, around the mm. way you live and sleep, the way you eat, the way you train. Mm. Um, you don't want to you know, just go out. And, well, I guess some people do. Again, it, it's a self-awareness. Some athletes do just want to come in and light the light the the circuit up for eighteen months or two years and then disappear. I wanted well, you to. See, you see that in the women's field quite a lot, actually. Yeah. We, we, we see women come and go. They seem to dominate for one four year cycle and then leave. And it, it's it's and uh, whereas in the men's, it does tend tend to be a little bit more sustainable. I think men tend to want to stay in the field a little bit longer. But um, yeah, I think they want to stay. Yeah. And I think you know the girls want to go and have families and and have other other mm. things that they want to move on to and. I guess it's understanding what your goals are and how long you want to be around and that self-awareness. So with my eating, I also knew that I, I didn't want to be on any sort of Spartan diet either. I wanted to enjoy myself so long as I wasn't, you know, sometimes I'd go out to dinner and if I felt like having a glass or two of red wine, I would or a beer. Yeah. Well, I, always found me, I found when we were training hard, it was like there was a, a massive fire in our gut, you know, and it was almost you could consume almost anything because your metabolism was just raging and and it was like you had a bonfire in there. And, and then, you know, when I retired sort of four or five years ago, it it was kind of like, whoa, I actually can notice the difference when bad food or alcohol or anything like if I'm putting it in my system, I really notice it because I'm only working out maybe an hour a day these days. But when, when you're an athlete, it really is about almost just (laughs) not to say that you should eat this way, but it was like almost just look, whatever there is, let's just get it in and let's just keep stoking that fire. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think anything in moderation is good. Having, having a good emotional state and being happy is important as well. So I would mm-hmm. always, I'd factor that into the diet. As long as you're not doing anything detrimental, I think mm. it's, it's important to enjoy it. And yeah, you know, I think, and I, I will say this with diet, I never, I never weighed myself or I never, I never ate to hit a certain number. I mm. ate to fuel myself. I saw it as fueling mm. and I would listen to my body, particularly when I was living up at altitude and training those big training weeks for, for Kona, I would always be hungry, so I'd always eat. I would fuel my body regularly, mm-hmm. uh, put in what I consider to be decent fuel for, for either a big session coming up or recovery post a session. And, and my parameters were more around with the eating, making sure that 
I had the energy to hit the training the right way and hit those training parameters the right way. It was never around, I have to eat this or that so I hit a certain weight. Um, mm. You know, especially when you're training hard, as you know, people will always, they're never shy to give you an opinion on how you look. Well, oh, geez, you're looking a little light or you're looking a little heavy or um, <laughs> it seems to be something in, in endurance sports and maybe all sports people love to. Well, the, the, wor- the worst thing you can say to a, uh, an endurance athlete before a race, and I used to do it to some of the younger guys when I wanted to get in their head, <laughs> be like, oh, you're looking healthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're looking healthy. It's like, oh, damn it. <laughs> the, I haven't best, trained hard enough. Yeah, the best compliment you could be giving, oh, man, are you, are you all right? You're looking really skinny. But like, okay, I'm ready to go. I mean, yeah, it was no. a, a bit of a sick mindset really when you think about it, but it was, uh, it was that kind of – it was a training effect more than – creating it you know we you weren't lean because you were starving yourself you were lean because of the training effect yeah the work and and that's why you know if you were caught healthy it would mean like well i haven't done the work you know it's like oh man i'm in trouble today but, yeah uh, no it's interesting yeah. the whole conversation around that i know with lucy my daughter i, I, I yeah. say to her you know we we eat a lot because like i use that as same analogy you do the fire's burning hot you've got to feed it Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you've got to refuel, you've got to fuel up before and, and we need energy. We need energy to to do those sessions and it's, it's about fueling your body. It's about energy and, and making sure that you feel good in the sessions. That, that's, you know, that was always my mindset around the nutrition. And what about uh, body work and, and body maintenance? Were you, uh, have you had a lot of that done, chiropractic massage? What, have you made that a focus or what, how do you treat that? Absolutely, yeah. No, that became a priority. Um, mm. You know, I think once again, having that education, that physio degree, I learned the importance of a proper functioning body, particularly in an event that requires sort of a repetitive motion over and again. You know, even in those, you remember those unbelievably intense triple super sprints we used to do. <laughs> By the end of it, though, you're still going for 30 or 45 minutes. So it, it's about holding speed rather than speeding up, particularly towards the end of those races. And often you, obviously you did need to kick it down with a sprint finish. But, you know, any sort of activity that requires the same motion over again, there's a huge efficiency component involved and wanting to move functionally well. So part of that is the body work, the massage, the chiro, making sure the body's working well and is flexible and functioning correctly and, and part of it I also saw is getting in the gym and working on those sort of functional movement patterns to make sure they were correct, um, efficient and you were strong enough to sort of maintain that that body position and that technique under load, under extreme fatigue. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I put a huge emphasis on that. I, I think my, my physio education certainly helped from that standpoint, understanding the importance of proper functional movement and also understanding that you know, all exercises are not created equally. There's some that are really specific to the disciplines of swimming, biking, and running, and, and you do those exercises and the strength and stability gains transfer very well into those three disciplines. Uh, and if you watch you can- anybody that's watched you run, um, I still think you're probably one of the most beautiful runners biomechanically that we've ever seen do the sport and specifically, you know, Kona Ironman when the body breakdown over the, you know, 42 kilometers, 26 miles is, is tremendous. You know, when you think you're starting a marathon at, you know, what are you already six hours in, five hours in and, 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 and then your ability, you know, I always remember watching you that final, you know, five miles or so to just hold that form and that biomechanical 
movement that you had was really pretty to watch. You know, I think there's you in the men's field and Marinda Carfrey on, on the women's field that biomechanically sound when fatigue is really setting in. You can see the work that you've done to lead up to those events to be able to hold it, and uh, it's been really pretty to watch. Yeah, it was a lot. Of, it was a lot of work going in. I worked. I made it a priority and worked hard in the mm. gym. Rennie's a beautiful runner. She's a beautiful runner mm. under fatigue and under load. And, you know, again, I was just fortunate to be in Boulder and happened to be swimming in Dave Scott's swim squad one day. Um, the first year I was doing Ironman racing and I'd always made gym work a priority, but yeah, he, I had a quick conversation with him and he gave me a few really good tips and then actually helped me design a program uh, and did every year throughout my Kona years because he told me and he understood the importance of that strength late in the, you know, in the second half of the marathon. So um, having, having Dave guide me through uh, and, and write me programs, very specific programs to sort of build that strength and conditioning and um, that core strength, you know, was very important and, and a big part of my success, I think. But, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I think body work is, is crucial. Um, you know, there's, there's many parts to a working athlete having a, you know, a really big and powerful heart and lungs is one thing um, and that aerobic conditioning, but also you've got to keep the, the chassis or the body in, in really good working order. So you do have to make body work and gym work a priority. Yeah, I like that analogy. And just, just for those that may not know, Dave Scott is like the godfather of the sport of triathlon. He uh, In Ironman racing, absolutely. Yeah, in the Ironman specifically. But he really put our sport on the map and, and what he did in the 80s. And then, um, you know, the big duel between him and Mark Allen, you know, in the late 80s, the 87 and 89 Ironmans was truly remarkable and, and a real pioneer of sport. Um, and probably one of the most generous people with knowledge that you could ever yeah, imagine. Absolutely. I am speaking to him in a, in a later episode here. So I'm really excited about that because I'm, I'm still such a, a fan. And like you said, you know, we often swam in his swim squad in Boulder and it was like, you know, Dave Scott, the man became a yeah. friend of ours and, a, and a, a mentor, but he was also the guy in the eighties that we were watching on TV as the, this, this, uh, what well, they called him the man. And, and he was the man of our sport, but very giving in his knowledge and always has been. And I'm really excited about um future episode I've got coming up where I get to sit and chat with him and, um, and really just learn more about him. So yeah, you mentioned him and I just wanted to give him a quick little, <laughs> a little bit of a little bit, but moving on, I just, um, in terms of general health, you know, and having three kids, how have you been able to manage that with, with, you know, have you f- struggled with any illnesses and things, but, you know, or have you been able to stay on top of that throughout your career? And, and do you get regular sort of blood work done or are you doing anything specifically to stay on top of that? I made it's another great question. Yeah. I think when, you have children and especially when they get to the age where they go into kindergarten or preschool as we call it <laughs> and they come into contact with other kids and it's just like they're all they're swapping snot out there I, mean, I, I don't know what is it that they do at these kindergartens and they come home with runny noses and um but you know I, I think I was always pretty resilient I think I was blessed with a pretty resilient body biomechanically but also I mean, I, I had I had a few immune system problems. I know I got I got the chicken pox in two thousand and two, and I got the cytomegalovirus in 05. Um, 
And you always had the bowl to cough. Well, remember that? You always came back to Boulder. You always had the bowl to cough. For for those that don't know, Boulder's incredibly dry and altitude. (laughs) The one thing with you, I think you always struggled to speak for the first month or two you were there every year. (laughs) Yeah, well, I had a a karaoke injury. And (laughs) and this is a true story. I had a karaoke. I had a karaoke injury that I got in 2005 when Lucy was born. I went to Ishigaki to race one of the World Cup races and I finished fourth, had a great race. And as you do when you're in Ishigaki for the World Cup, you go to sing karaoke afterwards. And we kind of had a a celebration because Lucy was only a a couple of weeks old and a few of the boys were there and we went to one of the karaoke bars on Ishigaki (laughs) Island and I sung for 12 hours. And I got nodules. I ended up getting nodules on my vocal cords that I had to have operated and removed. And the doctor actually wrote in the medical notes, karaoke injury. Oh, my God. That's And then every year when I went up to Boulder, I would lose my voice for a month. And he told me I would struggle. My my singing career ended that night. (laughs) Not that it ever got started. I don't know. 12 hours of singing. (laughs) Yeah, we were were on Uh, fire that night. Oh, I, I, there's a movie out where oh, it's one of those chick flicks, and the, one of the one of the lead singers, and she she has nodes or whatever has node nodes problems. But that's the only other time I've ever heard it. Um, oh God, it'll mm. come to me. But oh, that's brilliant. I love that. So day to day now, are you? Uh, I guess how does your training compare now to say when you were you know that you know from 06 to 2012 when you you were complete domination if you like from 70.3s to Ironman it was no matter what you looked at you were winning and 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 don't get me wrong you've still kept winning but that to me was that era where it was the Craig Alexander era and has your training changed much between now and then or what does a day look like for you now compared to then well the the focus has changed so training and racing is not the day-to-day priority so you know as you know when you're coming up through the ranks and then I guess when you ascend the mountain and you're trying to stay there you you set your year up, you're very meticulous with your planning, the, your race scheduling, and then you set the training up around that, and that's the priority. Um, so that's not the priority anymore. Um, but because of that endurance base that I've got, I'm able to train at a level where I can still race uh, big races and be competitive. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I, I wouldn't say I have a training program as such um, where every session every every hour every day is accounted for like it used to be i have certain sessions that i do each week like i'll swim with a master squad two or three times um, i'll normally meet a group of guys to go for a ride once or twice but in and around that i'm pretty flexible the two other sessions i try and do each week are with my daughter's run group they run quite hard once on the track and once sort of a fart leg session in a park in and around that, I just really do what I feel like when I when I wake up. If I'm really tired, I'll just go very very easy that day. Um, and I'm not, yeah, it's it's different. I, I would say I'm on average I'm probably hitting around 15 hours a week. And then if I schedule a race in, I need about four to six weeks, and I ramp it up so I get over 20 hours. Um, mm. And I certainly don't do the run volume I used to do, but I, I'll have those two intense run sessions a week. So it's, I think the endurance is there what what diminishes as we get get older is strength and speed so i guess there's more of a focus on that getting in the gym mm-hmm. um and doing sort of hill work on the bike and run um for the strength side of it and, and just speed work and i know when i run on the track it, it can take a while but i can sort certainly get up and hit some decent speeds again i think it's not as easy as it used to be because 
of, I guess, the way your muscles deteriorate. But power in the ground kind of thing. I, I noticed when I one of the reasons I actually did stop, you know, when I was forty four is I just I started running and now my best 10K started to be around 32 minutes. And that, that was, I look back and I go, wow, that was really fast. But, but to be competitive in the racing that I truly loved, which was the Olympic distance, you know, non-drafting, um, it was kind of like, well, quicker, yeah. you know, I, I remember getting off the bike in Beijing with a, a minute 45 lead and, and getting run down. And, and for someone who regarded themselves as a runner, first and foremost, that was almost like at that moment in 2013, I remember just thinking, oh, uh, no, it was no, it wasn't 2013, was it? 2015. I remember just thinking, "Wow, this this is not great." And, and, and it was that power in the ground. It was the turnover. It was all those little bits. And maybe my stride length had shortened by you know a centimeter or two, but it was enough that it meant that I was running 32 minutes, and 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 that had become harder. But I love the fact that you you know your two priority runs are with your your daughter's run group, and I, I just think that's. Uh, I just love the, I love the, the concept of family and, uh, and how empowering that is for both of you. You're both getting something from that. I know that Lucy's getting something back, you know, by your dad running with her and, and you're getting something back, obviously running with your daughter. I, I just love that. Yeah, it's awesome. I'm, I feel so lucky to be able to do it and we, we both do enjoy it. It's, it's something that we share together and I love the fact that she just doesn't mind that dad comes in and in fact wants dad to come in and run. So it's beautiful. I love yeah, it. It's, it's really good. Just back to your early point about the immune system and staying healthy. I think, I think the fact, I mean, Neri's an emergency nurse. And mm. so ever since I've known her, she's worked in the emergency room of, of big hospitals. And I think early on, you, you just, you build up an immunity when you get exposed to these things. And <laughs> of, of course she would be getting exposed to everything that was going around, whether it be a, a new, sort of influenza virus or, or whatever. And then I would, I guess, be subject to it and, and you just build up an immunity over time. So I was very lucky on that front, I think. But again, you know, none of these things are mutually exclusive. When you talk about the eating well and the sleeping well and, and doing those things that help boost the immunity, um, you need to do all of those things, even when you're not a, a serious athlete anymore. But if you're serious about life and you can't afford to be laid up in bed, you know, health's important. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's where I think the sleeping and the eating piece once again comes to the fore. Mm-hmm. Well, there's big statistics on um, the amount of money that it costs the workplace for people being off work sick. Um, yeah, and how if they just invest a little bit more in their well-being in the companies, how much how much money they'd actually save in the long run. But um, I, I, I guess I'm curious also, do you? practice or did you practice any kind of mental strategies or did it come kind of naturally i you know from visualizing or or self-affirmation self-talk or you know were you a creative thinker like that or you know how how did that work for you mate you've come out with all the good questions tonight yeah that's a great (laughs) question because you know i think um and once again neri was instrumental here you know, when I first was racing pro and I was getting a lot of top 10s, I wasn't cracking too many top fives though. And I was okay with that at the time because, you know, I was in my early 20s and I was racing guys like yourself and Craig Walton, Miles Stewart, Brad Bevan, Simon Lessing, you know, legends, Hamish Carter, guys who were just better, more developed and at that point just better. But then Neri one day said to me, she, she said, do you think you have a mental block with some of these guys? And I said, no, no, I, I think they're just at the moment. that I can have a great race and if they have a great race, they'll be in front of me. That's just where I'm at in my development. Mm. 
Mm. Um, and she said to me, well, what's going to happen when you get to the point physically when you can compete and you are on their level? And I said, that's a good question because then it's, there needs to be a mental shift that I'm not going to be okay with fifth or eighth anymore. I need to, and as you know, there's a big difference between even between third and first, that, that mindset to win is important. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, and and you alluded to it right at the the start of our chat about, you know, the champion's mindset. You, You don't just develop it once you win a race and someone calls you a champion, you, you actually have that mindset before. That's why you get there. You, you develop this winning mindset about um, setting your own goals, um, you know, moving through your own journey, that self-improvement, that self-evaluation, outsourcing for expertise. You have that mindset before you actually win, and that's why you do win. Um, so, yeah, at Neri's sort of suggestion, she said it might help for you to go and um, speak to a sports psychologist, and I never really thought of it because I didn't think I needed it. But once again, she had a better insight than I did. And she was more forethinking. I was thinking right in the moment about this week, this month, what I need to do, what races I've got coming up, how I'm going to improve in the short term. But she, she had, I guess, more of a, an overview. And cause she could see I was trending in the right direction and there was going to come a time that, yeah, I, w- I was going to need to. And it's interesting, you know, when you come up, through a sport, I guess, and I see it now with 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 Lucy and her running, and even the all schools triathlon pathway that she's going through. When I think when you come up in your formative years as as a teenager, and even late in your teens and early twenties, and you're good at something, you get that affirmation from the coaches and from your results. Mm. When when you start something in your early twenties, you haven't really got that. I guess that foundation of confidence or affirmation to fall back on. You haven't had coaches grooming you and telling you you're improving or that you need to work on this or that you're doing really well um, and not having a coach early in my career either. Yeah, you don't, I guess you don't have that to lean on. So it was very important that I went and got some mental skills and, you know, that was, ah, oh, that was over 20 years ago, but I still remember one of the things the lady said, she said, you know, the thoughts, feelings, actions, triangle, those three things are inextricably linked. Mm. The way you think it impacts the way you feel and the way you feel impacts the way you act. Mm-hmm. And there's no way around that. Mm. Uh, I mean, you can tie that into positive thinking and, and all those things, but that's where it comes from. But for better or worse, your thoughts impact your actions, which then impact uh, your thoughts, impact your feelings, which then impact your actions. So yeah. you need to get on board with, you know, having some positive thinking, some positive affirmation. Um, you know, when things are going wrong, having some strategies or skills, how do you turn it around? How do you, t- turn that thought process around from the negatives to the positives and then start acting out on those those thoughts and, yeah, and those feelings. So, um, yeah, there were some good skills. And then later on I incorporated more of sort of visualisation and mental rehearsal. Um, you know, I could almost take myself to the start line at a, at a world title or lifetime fitness or one of those bigger races. You know, you know what it feels like. You know what it smells like. Um, you know who you're going to be racing the temperature you can feel, you feel the, the hot or the cold on your skin. And I could, I could close my eyes and take myself to how I was going to respond and react in different situations. And I think all those different skills that I learned helped me as well. I think you get a feeling of deja vu in a race where you might be confronted with a situation that's challenging and you feel like you've been there before and you know how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I I think you've touched on some really good things there. I remember talking, I, I kind of believe there's people that tend to be, I'll call them their born champions. And what I mean by that is they come out of their youth with this tremendous confidence and they kind of know how to win. And an example of that within our sport was uh, Miles Stewart, who mm. is now the CEO of Triathlon Australia and uh, was a, a fierce competitor from a very young age and actually won the World Triathlon Championships at the young age of 18. Um, just incredible guy, out sprinting like pig. Incredible, and, yeah. and, and I sat down with him once and had coffee a couple of years ago and I just said, you know, I had to learn how to win. You know, for me, winning, I, I wasn't a confident teenager. I wasn't confident in my early 20s. Like you mentioned, I, I looked at guys like him and and uh, the other greats of the sport at the time and just was like, wow. And and that sense of belonging or that belief in myself came much, much later. And, and even if I'd won the World Series title a couple of times in a row, I still wasn't winning a lot. And one of the speeches I give is about basically I had a winning rate of about 10%. And then from sort of 06, 07, I changed that winning rate, you know, dramatic, dramatically to closer to 50%. And a lot of that was due to the fact that I really worked very, very hard on my visualizing myself as a, as a winner, as a champion. And, and, and that visualizing exactly like you, you said, it was those thoughts really transcended to action. And and I looked at the visualizing in two ways. I looked at it as one physical and one as static visualizing. So a static visualizing, I'd be on the massage table and I'd go through a race or whatever. And I'd, I'd decide on the players. Okay, there's Craig Alexander, there's Peter Robinson, there's blah, 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 right? And I'd have you guys all in my head and, and then I'd go through the race and how it's going to happen. And, and often I'd feel myself on the table almost like, being empowered it was like there was this uh, the hormones were being released so you actually through your thinking process were actually affecting yourself physically you know because there was a physical effect to visualizing and that's what people don't understand i think there's this the brain and i think this is the future of sport to be honest more than anything else i think we're only just really touching on what the brain can do that when we actually see it we do create a physical response with the hormone changes going in the body. And then the other, you know, visualizing that I did was the physical one. So I'd go down to the trail or whatever and do 10 by 1K repeats or whatever. And and again, I'd be out there visualizing and I'd have a commentator in my head. And, you know, even if it was a bad day, I'd just, you know, start by going, everybody must have really pushed the bike really hard because, you know, the legs are really flat and everybody's running a bit slow or whatever, but always turning that visualizing into a positive and, uh, I just, for me, that was a big change around that sort of 05, 06 time. And I think you you and I both had won a lot of races before then, but our careers almost did have that kind of five, six-year push at the, around the same time. And for me personally, when I look back, it was my ability to really just really take control of my mind and start the belief systems. And yes, it had, yes, the physical had to be there. Don't get me wrong. I still had to have done the work and the years and years and years of work, but it was that, um, that ability of them to, yeah. to take control well, of the mind. Yeah. It's the mind body connection for sure. Mm, and, yeah. And understanding that. And I think, I mean, from a physical standpoint, there's a lot of gifted athletes out there and often they're all on the start line at the same time. And, you know, I think it's the people who were consistent when you watch them race, they raced within that very narrow variance of performance. You knew what you were going to get with them mm. all the time. Mm. And there was a mm. lot of guys we could mention and girls 
I think they had it figured out. Mm. Some people you'd see would, would, could win a race and then they'd disappear or get a 20th. <laughs> and then, you know, physically you'd see them again. They, they might win a race and then disappear for two years or, or not get in the top 10 for another two years. And, you know, a lot of athletes were, are capable of winning. I think the ones who can control their mind and, and understand that mind body connection and have different mental strategies and skills are the ones who operate consistently at the higher level. Mm. Yeah, I, I just love that. I really, for me, this is the exciting part of sport moving forward. But enough on that for now. Have you got any, um, you know, for the guys listening and, you know, any sort of swim, bike, run, recovery, nutrition type gear tips that you have? Or, I mean, it's also a good time to, if you've got any sponsors you want to plug. But, I mean, you know, is there any kind of items that you think could help people? Uh, I wear guess. Their- um, I think the thing is, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, I won't sit here and plug the sponsors. I think people, if they're, they're interested and people who follow me know the products that I use. And I mean, I base those decisions around performance. I, I use things that help me perform better. And I always have, um, I always took a, a really long-term approach with that. I wasn't after the, the short-term paycheck. I, I wanted equipment that would help me perform at a higher level. So and I think it's understanding. Again, it's not a one-size-fits-all. I mean, with a bike, you want to be – there's a lot of great bikes out there. You want to be super comfortable. You, you've got to be aerodynamic, no doubt. And I've, the last five years, I've seen huge inv- advancements in, I guess, the, the race suits and the helmets and, and the way the guys and girls position on their bikes. It's really nice to see, actually. It's taken the, the sport to another level professionally, I believe, um, mm. when you watch the high-level races. But I just think you need to you, – you need to – find out what works for you. Same with wetsuits, you know, it depends on the the flexibility of the suit you're looking at and where it's flexible. I mean, you need the buoyancy through the hips, but you, you need flexibility really through the shoulders. So, and particularly, you know, everybody's got a different swim stroke. Some have a more relaxed recovery over the water. Some have more of a traditional or typical open water technique, which is like more of a straight arm. Um, so I think you need to try different things and find out what works for you. Um, mm. And that's the same with nutrition and and all things. I I always did that. I I tried everything and then used what I thought was the best. Um, Is that you're working with um, the cramping? What's the what's the cramping? Shot, yeah, hot shot. Yeah, you found that to be to work. I, I haven't well, I, tried it or anything, so I, I, just... I had, yeah. So I was never a huge cramper. I, I never mm. cramped a lot in races. All I did in Kona a few times. Um, I remember with like 2K to go when you were breaking, you had the win and course record and everything. I ended up walking, yeah. I lost lost minutes out there that day. I started cramping with, I don't know, 7 or 8K to go, but it wasn't really bad until about 3K to go. Mm. Anyone who's ever cramped or has cramped knows how debilitating it is. It just stops you in your tracks. But I I mean, people know about that sort of cramping episode, but I also cramped one year. In the swim, at the start of the race, I got hit in the calf right in the middle of the muscle belly. <laughs> and I cramped my foot, my calf cramped the whole swim, which is right at the start of the race when you're not depleted or fatigued at all. That is so, interesting. But that's, I started doing more and more reading when that happened. And um, ironically, I came across the hot shot drink and it was developed by Dr. Rod McKinnon, who's a Nobel Prize winning scientist who had developed the product because he he was an avid ocean paddler. He was an endurance paddler mm. and he cramped one time right at the start of his race and nearly drowned and that's why he developed the drink and 
Yeah, he, he, he sort of figured out there was another mechanism of cramping. I mean, obviously, mm. you always have to be on point with your nutrition and hydration because you will cramp if you don't mm. um, hydrate and replenish electrolytes. And also, extreme fatigue can lead to cramping. But I had a couple of episodes of cramping, one at the Rev3 triathlon in Kwasi in 2010 where the water was warm, but the air temperature was very cold, so we didn't wear wetsuits. When I came out of the swim, I had a great swim, but I was running up to transition. I started cramping in my feet and my legs. Mm. So I always felt there was a mechanism of cramping that wasn't tied into fatigue or depletion, and that's how I came to use that drink. And, yeah, I still use it to this day in, in, in my training um, before the really hot, hard sessions. So, um, you know, I'm a bit of a traditionalist in that I don't like gimmicks, but I'm willing to, if there's solid research behind it, and that's what I liked about that drink. I got to meet Rod McKinnon and he's amazing. He won a, his main area of expertise was um, around, I think, asthma research and smooth muscle. He's a neurobiologist. Wow. And he has a lab at the, a research laboratory at the Rockefeller Institute, which was lucky enough to get a tour of by Rod himself. And yeah, they're doing some world leading work in there. The hotshot was just sort of his hobby, I guess, his side project. But yeah, I, I like to look at the, having that, I guess, that physio and that science background. I like to look at the science behind something and then, and then try it out because I guess there are a lot of gimmicks out there, but with all the innovation and technology that's coming through life and, and then infiltrating sport, I don't think we can be ignorant to certain things which may help. Um, but when it comes to my products I'm, and the running shoes or the wetsuits, nutrition, I've always just tried so what are, they, what are the products that you're using now so people know? Well, I've run in Newton shoes for a long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been with Oakley, Oakley sunglasses for over 20 years, or nearly 20 years now. Shimano bike componentry and wheels and, and shoes. Um, mm-hmm. Been with Shimano nearly 20 years. Argon 18 bikes. Um, mm-hmm. Trimtex, an apparel company out of Norway who have traditionally been involved in Nordic skiing and orienteering, but they're getting more and more into cycling and triathlon, and they make very high-quality top-end gear, so I'm, I'm loving working with them. Oh, that's cool. I haven't heard of them. That's yeah, you, yeah, you should look them up there. I, I love companies that are passionate and mm. and are into innovation, and, um, you know, they've obviously come into triathlon from a different background, Nordic skiing, but still sort of with a high-performance mentality, and they're trying to transfer that into into triathlon and endurance sports, and they're coming up with a really high quality garments. So I've loved, mm. I've loved working with them. Uh, who else have we got? I use Coda Nutrition, so that's a company out of Australia. They do electrolyte tablets and gels. Uh, also, it's based around a sweat test. Oh, great! So once again, yeah. just that sort of individual specific needs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we all sweat differently. We all metabolize fuel differently, and um, we absorb differently. So you need you have different requirements. So um, yeah, so I'm a big believer in just finding out what works well for you as an individual athlete and and going with that, but not being adverse to change when something comes along, maybe give it a try. Yeah, it, it's hard not to be cynical. It's like you said, that you, you walk through a, a trade show or whatever or, you know, pre-race, you know, after your briefing, you go walk through the halls where all the little stands are set up and there's different kinds of socks that are going to improve your performances and shoes and and, and then obviously nutrition, there's a million different products. And it, it is hard to sort of go through and decipher what's what's actually, you know, helpful and what's actually just, you know, a marketing scheme. And um, But that's why having people like yourself on this show, I, I like to be able to hear, you know, 
guys and girls that have been able to see through the bullshit and figure out exactly yeah. what, what does work. You yeah, well, I think you've got to, I think again, you just got to take ownership and do a bit of reading and, yeah, and find yeah. out what you can ask around. And try and, it out. Try it and, out. And just yourself. try different things. Yeah. Try, try different things. I mean, like yeah. for instance, bike seats, everyone's going to be different. I've been with, I've been with the same saddle company physique for nearly 20 years and I just love their products. They, they just work for me. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And bike saddles, geez, that's, it's so unique. You know, you really, I'm a, I know my wife, especially for women, I feel like the women even more so than us guys have to really find a saddle that works for them. They're sitting on all sorts of bits that we don't have to worry about as much. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, Laura went through at one time we had 10 different bike saddles lined up on the kitchen counter from different brands that she was trying out and trying to f- decipher what she wanted to wear. And yeah. So, okay. So what is a, what, you know, what's 2020 look like and, and the future for you? I mean, you, you, you're 46, you'll be 47 in June. Is that when your birthday is? I can't remember. Yeah, June, June that's right. Yep. Um, you know, what, what is this plan? I mean, you've obviously got some great support still with, with brands and sponsors and your body's hanging in there and you seem passionate still about the sport. Are we going to, you know, is it, we just keep pushing? What is the plan? Yeah, no, I, I think I really like to train over the summer in Australia and I don't travel really apart from a couple of camping trips with the family. Mm. So, yeah, it's an easy time for me to train and, and build some consistency and build some fitness. So mm. I do plan on racing again early next year, um, possibly in Geelong. I haven't raced there for a few years. I love the 70.3 down there. I've, I've won it four times. It's mm-hmm. I've just find it a really nice race. There's also a, another race close to home here, Huskisson, which has become mm-hmm. a pretty big triathlon festival on the landscape here, kind of like the Noosa Fest- Festival. It's sort of a three-day event that has swimming races, bike races, kids' events, um, fun runs, and then the, the long course race on the Sunday. Awesome. So I might get down there. And, and getting up into Asia, I like to, you know, the sport is, you know, when we first started, the main circuits were North America or Europe, but it truly is a global sport now. And I think the two areas I've really seen explode the last five or 10 years are South America and Asia. So mm, definitely, I've enjoyed racing up in Asia. So I might get up there. There's a, a few new events um, that I might get up to. And, but yeah, I, I, t- I try to tie the racing in with, you know, events that my, my sponsors feel um would be important if they have maybe a you know sort of tie that in with promotional trips as well and and also races that i think are important to try and grow the sport in a region um Mm. and also just fun experiences i mean i guess they're my criteria for picking races now and things you've won so many it's like i said at the top of the show i you you've won probably especially in this you know the longer stuff i don't think there's anybody that's won as many races as you have and i feel like you just keep Ticking a box. There's another one. There's another one. And, and, and I know for a lot of our listeners, if you know, that might be aspiring professional athletes, or even if they could just win one of the races that you've won, I think they'd feel like they've made it. And, and, you know, I just love watching you work, just keep ticking these over. And, you know, you're, you're a competitive guy, but you, you know, I think you're very comfortable within your own skin with, you know, what you've done and achieved that now it's really, you know, you've, you've become this guy that, you know, brands want to work with because of all your experience and knowledge and, and you, you're an open book, like I said earlier. And, um, you know, it's been truly impressive to watch and I, I hope you keep racing. I, I love it. I, I, uh, yeah, well, that's the plan. That's the plan for the next yeah. five, five or six months anyway. But yeah, yeah, I'm very lucky. I've, I'm well supported by some great companies and I, I feel that's my major obligation outside of family now is, I mean, 
I guess there's a lot of different ways to leverage a partnership when you're when you're winning world championships or big races, companies can leverage the performances and mm. and then after the fact they can leverage you by just having you turn up to places and speak and mm. appear um, mm. at trade shows, big retailers, dif- different distributors around the place. Um, so, yeah, that's that's my main focus is, again, to support the companies who have supported me and Brilliant. do some promotional work for them, do a little bit of racing. Still Good got the, the, the business San Sego ticking along. We've got a camp planned for oh, yeah. Yeah. Mallorca in May next year. Um so yeah, a lot of good, a lot of good things, and just try to be a great husband and dad. That's what I'm. <laughs> so where do something... people follow you on uh, on all of this? You know, you've got the like you said, you've got the Sans Ego. Uh, Sans, did I say that right? Sans Ego. Sans yep. Ego. Yeah. So we've got yeah. a website. So with, where do they follow you on all your social media and stuff? Yeah, I'm on I'm on social media, which is a good and a bad thing. <laughs> so is it um, Craig Alexander? Or... It's um, I should check. I'm not okay with all this stuff. <laughs> I know um, you're as bad as I am. <laughs> um, let me just check. Right, I'm Crowy Alexander on Instagram, Craig Alexander on Facebook, and on Twitter I am Crowy Alexander as well. There you go. Crowy's my nickname. So. Yeah, I know. I remember being as there you with know, Hilly when we when we nicknamed you that. You were there, mate. You were yeah. back. You were there. That was that was nearly 25 years ago. You were yeah. one of the ones. So Crowy, for everybody that doesn't know. Um, before triathlon really took off, like like you mentioned, the Cooling Out of Gold and the Surf Ironman series in Australia was really the big thing. And the Surf Ironman series had a guy by the name of what was his full name? Jonathan Jonathan Crow. Jonathan Crow. And and you look very very similar to Jonathan Crow. And and so uh, Chris Hill, another very good mate of ours and, and former professional triathlete, just started calling you. Crowy and it and it's stuck and it's stuck. I think it's hilarious. Twenty five, right? And you've met him, right? You met. Yeah, no, it's it's funny because he was well. A couple of funny stories there. He did physio as well, and he was a couple of years ahead of me. And I saw him at uni after he'd won the cool and got a gold, and I was starstruck. And then when I went on to, to win the races, I went on to, and I th- I told the story about how I got the nickname. And I got a message from him, I think it was on social media or Facebook or something, saying, can you send a message to my friends? Um, <laughs> they don't believe that you're nicknamed after me. <laughs> that's so great. I just love that that's, that's just lasted all these years, 25 years. So I don't even – it's hard for me to actually say, like, your name, Craig, because I'm so used to Crowy that it's like it doesn't – it feels strange. I know, Yeah. So, Mate, I just really appreciate all your time you've just given me now and, and thanks to everybody for listening. This has been um, truly a highlight for me to get get to spend this time chatting to a really good friend and, you know, we've shared so many stories over the years and watched each other accomplish incredible things. So, you know, thanks for coming on, buddy. Mate, I appreciate the invite. We, we have a long history, a great history together. We are great friends and, I mean, you were influential in my career. Um, I think we spent many, many hours together on the bike, running and swimming, and it's a privilege to be on. I appreciate you extending the invitation. It was great to chat. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time. 
and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.